My name is Alexander Eri Laupma and you are listening to the Photographiska Talent podcast. My guest today is a unique photographer and a beautiful human being, Nick Brandt, whose exhibitions This Empty World and Inherit the Dust are showing in Photographiska Tallinn until February of 2022. We had a wine-ranging conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to Photographiska Tallinn, uh, Nick Brandt. It's very nice to talk to you again. Uh, Perhaps we can start off with you telling me a story about what were the first things that you learned about Africa? Or let's say the first time you got there, what was something that spoke to you and what was something that made you want to go back? Um, The most amazing thing about the animals of East Africa is that when you first go there, I think a lot of people have the same reaction that I did, which is it hits you like a punch in the stomach that you look across these plains and you see all these different species um, stretched across the horizon in a single kind of expanse. And that's very rare to see pretty much anywhere in the world now. And of course, uh, increasingly few places in Africa where you can still see that. And that was something that made you want to made you want to go back. You, yeah. you had, I think had, it's a very as I say I think it's a very common uh feeling people just it has this kind of um visceral impact on people. And uh, have you had any similar experiences in other countries later on or even I've previous had to that? the same experience scuba diving uh w- which is kind of for me actually even better where you it's like traveling to another universe and you're floating in space past all these extraordinary alien creatures and having spent so much time with wild animals above ground i'm actually now even more captivated by uh life underwater uh i can't think of anything i would rather do in life than just float underwater as manta rays glide past me like spaceships that is very beautiful because one of the questions i actually wanted to ask you was about uh whether there is something uh with the exception that your work is that you really love doing or, or that inspires you yeah. and i feel like then this might be something like that have you ever considered doing any photography underwater i thought about it briefly and i realized there was absolutely no point because there are hundreds if not thousands of great photographers doing work underwater already it takes a lot of skill and You know, I don't take photographs of wild animals anymore. You know, I mean, I haven't done that for a long time. Uh, the photography and the exhibition and the work that I now do is more, you know, environmental photography, which is to do with both humans and animals that have been uh, uh, impacted by environmental degradation and destruction. 
And uh, for that work, you go you go away on your missions for a long time, right? Like the last body of work, what was the complete amount of time that it took you to actually not just the post-production, but just uh, the part that you did in Africa? So this empty world, which is the biggest part of the exhibition showing at the museum, uh, was five straight months uh, of which two months was solid night shoots in nightly dust storms which was by far the hardest thing i think not just me but anybody on the crew had ever done um it was brutal i mean if you've ever even just done a couple of nights in a row working now stretch that out to two months and with dust storms kind of leaving your eyes bloodshot uh, within minutes um so i and how do you cope with that? How do you cope away with uh, being away from uh, family, friends for so long? Uh, obsession takes care of all that. I'm so obsessed with the work that I'm doing that that is all I'm really thinking about. And over the past decades, is it something that I suppose your friends, family, people have to have gotten used to it like they know that like this is what nick is like it's not the, i yeah, hope I that mean, it's it not is, a problem it anymore <laughs> of course it's something that uh you know a long-suffering wife uh <laughs> is kind of wearily resigned to um but she's an actress and so she's away for long periods as well um we'll often i think there was one year we only saw each other for 20 days in the entire mm. year um so, um, yeah, I mean, but there's there's many jobs in the world, like people who go and work on oil rigs. They're gone for months at a time or people working in the military. So, you know. What would your team members say is the most difficult and or the best part of working with you? I mean, I think you'd probably have to ask them. It would be presumptuous of me to uh, figure out what they regard as the best and the worst parts. But certainly, um, it depends on each project. You know, This Empty World was, as I said, the hardest project I think any of us had ever done. It was exhausting working all those nights. Um, the most recent project was just regular daylight hours, and it was much more relaxed. Um, it really dep depends on each project. What about for yourself? Like, what, what's the most difficult part about being you when you're like, oh, my God, now here I am again doing that? The most difficult part, because I finance everything myself, mm. is um, the money that is wasted every day that it's sunny. Mm. Because I have no interest in photographing in sunlight. It creates completely the wrong mood aesthetically. It's day after day after day of not being able to photograph because it's too sunny. I never ever lose my patience with animals and um and it's really just it's it's pretty brutal when you just you've got all these people you're paying and you can't do anything at least if you're working you know you're achieving something but um Africa's a sunny place so even in the rainy season there's a lot of waiting have you become a different person doing that or is it the is the just the work has changed but what you're doing is still the same thing around 2012 i realized i needed to deal with the environmental destruction that i was seeing 
in East Africa in a much more direct way. And that meant coming up with concepts that were much more conceptual. Uh, so first of all, the first series was Inherit the Dust, which is showing in the museum, um, in which uh, I took photographs, life-size panels. We printed and created life-size panels of um, photographs that I'd never released and placed them into landscapes um, where the animals such as those used to roam, but due to human invasion development, uh, no longer did. Um, and that was a kind of combination of land art and street photography. And um, I found it, um, it, was a, it was actually quite sort of unscripted because we just would wait each day for the local people to become completely used to our presence. So they basically paid no attention to us anymore. So there were these giant panels of elephants and giraffes in these landscapes and nobody's paying attention to them. So the animal, the photographs of the animals appear like uh, ghosts in the landscape. How do you deal with the fact that this uh, this new work, or at least the, the one that we have uh, most in our uh, museum, which is the impact that humans are having on the animals, and for that, the animals often have to look uh, unwell. They have to look as if, um, how can I say it? They don't look majestic. They don't look happy. They don't look like, um, yeah, just joyful to be there. They look diminished in yes. a way. And this is something that makes the viewer feel uneasy because it is so, supposed to. It's yep. supposed to make us yep. feel bad. But and how do you like I'm, I'm really trying to get, get this question right. You know that this is what you're doing. And when you do it right, it creates an emotion. It's, yep. It creates a visceral emotion. But at the same time, you want people to look at your photos, but, but you, you have to make them um, uneasy to 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 give the message but but then it also makes it like you don't want to look at it the same way that you want to look something that is beautiful mm -hmm. do you see what i'm getting at yeah i mean like what what i'm saying when you do your work right you're showing people something that they don't want to see you know at the when i'm taking photographs i am only taking photographs for myself i am not considering how other people might react now Obviously, I want people to respond in a, in, a, in a meaningful, emotional way to the images when they see them. Um, but I, I'm not second-guessing and imagining how they might react. I'm in the moment. I'm purely thinking about satisfying my own creative needs and expression. Um, but as I say... Obviously, you want people to kind of be moved and be stimulated and think about what you're saying. Um, in This Empty World, which is the main part of the exhibition in the museum, um, yeah, you're right about the animals being very deliberately diminished. So once upon a time, when I used to photograph uh, wild animals, the camera was low to the ground to make the animals appear majestic and noble. And in this body of work, we dug trenches uh, where we hoped that elephants would f eventually wander into to drink water. And 
they're now looking down onto elephants and lions and whatever other animals went into those trenches, it kind of looks like they're in their graves. Um, that they are being swallowed up by the earth and the tide of pro human progress is sweeping over them. Um, so that was a very conscious decision. Um, but also in, importantly within the work, and you can only really see this when you come to the museum and see the prints at their full size, is the people in the photographs are not the villains, they're not the aggressors. They also, as the rural poor, are swept along by the tide of progress as well. And um, they are not in control of their destiny as they should be. Um, and the villains are really off screen, the industrialists and politicians who just rape the planet for short term economic gain. Um, so does that answer your question? Uh, perhaps I already I was so into your answer that I already <laughs> forgot what I what I asked. So I guess that 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 does answer it. Uh, what is what is the most satisfying part about your work or when do you feel the most satisfied? So. Two stages. Well, OK, the best part is the dreaming before you've done anything just getting the concept and starting to think of all the possible things that you might do that's really kind of wonderful and then of course you go and start shooting and there's sort of grim reality that hits you but then another wonderful part is surprises that I've learned to just embrace unexpected circumstances. And so um, nothing in the photographs in this exhibition, not sorry, that's not true, not nothing, but almost all the photographs in the exhibition, uh, the people are completely undirected. They're, we ask them to just go and stand in front of the camera and we kind of roughly, you know, ask them where to stand then we just leave them until they kind of are a bit bored a bit tired and they don't know the camera I'm taking photographs and unexpected things happen that um, are far better than anything I could come up in with in my own imagination and that's very stimulating um, and then f the final part is the e editing process where you kind of see your babies come to life, where you see, you know, people will say, like, uh, you've literally just finished shooting and a crew member will say, um, so you're happy with what, we, what you got? And I have no idea. I'm not, I have no idea whether I'm happy then, before I've looked at the photographs on a computer screen. I have no idea if I'm happy uh, when I make the first print because I, ca I can't tell whether the photograph's any good until I actually see a two-dimensional print. A, a lot of stuff looks good backlit on a computer screen. For me, a real test is, let's see what it looks like as a print. And uh, it's much harder, in my opinion, for an image to succeed in that two-dimensional physical form. And then I still don't know whether I'm happy because then you've got to basically live with it. And it might take 10 years. And you still, you thought maybe you were happy with it. Actually, after 10 years, you're really unhappy with it. So uh, I'm constantly questioning and unhappy and um, 
what was the actual original question again? I now forgotten again. Uh, what is the most satisfying part? <laughs> yeah, so about no, I got work? I answered that part. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but but, but the, no, but I think half of what you said is very good because would you really want to be happy with something that you did 10, 20 years ago? Because that just shows that you're growing. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fearful of complacency and self-satisfaction. And I tend to worry a lot. And worrying can be very wearing for both the pe- somebody you live with and for yourself. Um, but I find that the worrying kind of keeps you questioning, 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 questioning. And even then, yeah, I mean, I do look back on a lot of older work and I'm either embarrassed or I cringe or I wish it had never, I'd never released it. Um, I believe this is something that is true of most most good artists that yeah and yeah. I, and i mean you know you keep working i mean there's that wonderful samuel beckett line from a play which is try try again fail fail again fail better and so you're kind of eventually trying to fail better and so there are many artists who will keep obsessively pursuing the same thing over and over again whether it's like you know francis bacon or lucian freud or you know, say Monet with his water lilies, and it's like, nope, I still haven't got it right. I still haven't captured the essence of those water lilies. And you can imagine Monet's friends coming over and going, oh, Claude, not the water lilies again. (laughs) And he's going, look, dude, I still don't have it. I still haven't got them right. And they're kind of rolling their eyes going, oh, Jesus, more bloody water lily paintings. But no, I still haven't captured the essence that I was looking for. I, in my work, I'm obsessed with always dealing with the environment. But each time I embark on a new project, I, A, I need to feel like it's something that nobody's ever done before and pray during the course of the process that nobody does because I don't really want to create anything if I feel somebody's done it before. And B, I like to be scared because... um, it kind of is stimulating excitement and sort of a certain amount of fear. So um, when I did This Empty World, I'd never shot in color. I'd never shot digital. I'd never used lights. And all of that was kind of scary, but also a buzz. Um, And by the time at the end of the shoot, I kind of was very comfortable with those three elements I knew nothing about at the beginning. So, um, yeah. Uh, you said something, and you've said it uh, a couple of times, and I've really thought about it every time you said it, about uh, knowing that nothing that you could come up with is better than what uh, can just uh, happen. And yeah. that's why you don't try to not direct uh, people mm-hmm. so much. And this is very beautiful, beautiful, but I would really like to know, how did you come to learn that? Because I feel like this is, because it's, it's, that's wisdom, That's it's it's a very wise thing, but I feel like many many people either never learn it or it takes I, a long I, I, long time I, it, to understand. It's I, I learned it pretty quickly. I learned it on day two of Inherit the Dust when I had an assistant director, and at the beginning, on the beginning of that shoot, we were kind of uh, employing local people for the day and setting them up, and then going and action, and then they would start walking, and I it was crap. It was stilted. It was not. It was just staged and awful and unconvincing. And you know, so after two days, I went, okay, we've got to. We've just got to let sit here and wait until people are 
They don't even notice or care about us anymore, which actually didn't take long. And that I learned that then going through into this empty world and then my new project, The Day May Break, I just love... People will kind of just do things that you would never think of and just the way they sit down, the way they look around and, you know, and then you might see something that they do spontaneously that you might just have missed and then you kind of might ask them, can you do that again? But it's still quite never as good as when it happens spontaneously. Still, for, but it's still so good that you learned it in such a short amount of time because so many people that I can think of, they would have gone, no, you're doing it wrong. These are stupid people I'm working with. Try to do it better, blah, blah, blah. They would, would have just thought like, no, 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 I know what it's supposed to be. And they would have worked for like months and months and months on it, not realizing that, oh, maybe I should, should just mm. like lean back and see what the people will, will do naturally. Yeah, I mean, the only thing about doing it that way is it takes a lot longer because you're waiting rather than imposing your own vision which you could then maybe get the shot done in 20 minutes um i'm waiting three hours for everybody just to settle in um so it's it costs more money and time but it's worth it what do you get inspired by and what did you get inspired by as a child nature animals and injustice um so that's why it now extends into like with the new work the day may break uh people being the literal focus of the photographs um that it i mean it sounds strange to be inspired by injustice but it's the kind of it grieves me when innocent beings whether human or animal are subjected to injustice whether it's environmental political social you know um you asked me a great question in the talk about what would you do if everything was just suddenly absolutely fine that there was no more environmental problems in the world um <laughs> and i think i answered something through what well, i just it was impossible to imagine because there's always going to be something that will leave me going to my deathbed angry that even if it's not environmental, which is never going to happen, there's always going to be environmental problems. Um, there would be some other injustice that would motivate me to want to uh, talk about it through photography. How do how do you keep uh, peaceful? Or you you said that you you, you could only uh, you could always find something to be angry at, and you said that you are a worrying person. Yeah. And again, some both things that usually make a great artist. But how do you how do you cope with that? How do you how do you deal with it? Not not terribly well a lot of the time. But um, again, nature. Um, I live up a mountain, which admittedly has burned in wildfires, and but. Um, the multiple moments of joy that can be had on a daily or hourly basis from nature, whether it's the sound of a hawk crying, flying over, or hummingbirds, or the smell of jasmine, or anything, or my dogs just sniffing around in the grass. Um, that, I mean, listen, it's, it's well established that being in nature is a calming, influence for you know kind of nearly everybody um i think one of the reasons if you go to new york and you see just how abrasive 
so many people are they're just sort of there's no nature around and they're just it's this cacophony and this crush of people and I mean that's why I think they're sort of so tense and abrasive it's just there's no relief there is there is this old saying that uh, no animal in its natural uh, like habitat is ever anxious or like they, they, sometimes they're afraid like yeah. when a yeah. when yeah. a predator is coming right but they're not anxious they don't have like this low level anxiety just yeah. going yeah. on yeah. except for animals that live very closely with humans yes and you see that with like with my dogs if i'm stressed my dog picks up on it immediately and i have to learn not to be too stressed around my dogs so that they then don't become stressed because it's not fair to them but is it something that is also true uh, with uh, africa and with the animals there uh, or is it something that is even is it possible to like uh, gauge that in a in some way that has has that also happened with uh, with the wildlife over there um well animals are certainly extremely stressed by human invasion whether it's you know just just as humans invade and now suddenly there are farms and there are roads and there are people and so then absolutely they are stressed because there isn't a break from it i mean it's no surprise yeah uh you mentioned going uh, with uh, this empty world first starting to work with uh, with digital with uh, with color H- how did that process go um i was a film snob and i only liked black and white and once i came up with this concept there was absolutely no choice it had to be color because i needed to see visually the invasion of the human world through color through all the lights the unnatural lights of of you know fluorescent light from a petrol station and um, halogen lights from uh, construction work and red light from tail lights etc etc and it had to be digital purely technically because we needed to see the photographs on a daily basis what was what we were getting I, again i couldn't have done it without the technical capabilities of digital like the fact that we were shooting at such low light levels with such depth of field that we were shooting at 25,000 ISO which is insanely high and still with that you'll see in the museum in the exhibition prints that are four meters long three meters long no four meters actually in a couple of instances and um, they hold up amazingly because they're stitch negatives because it's their panoramic frames that were taken simultaneously you know chung 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 one two three um and that seeing that i was suddenly able to get that and this um uh literally be able to expose that kind of low light level and everything i could capture with that i found very exciting um and also there was a huge relief with being able to see um what we were getting immediately because i've had some horrors 
some terrible things happen where I've got home months later and um, the film was all screwed up because of technical problems with the camera that I couldn't know because I hadn't been able to process the film. Um, but I still love film for black and white. Um, and I would like to think that I haven't totally abandoned it because there's an indefinable mystery and magic that sometimes occurs with the way the light hits film negative. Um, that is, and also the other thing is, um, to this day, the sensor of a digital camera is still much smaller than, say, a six by seven medium format negative, which means what that means is that the field of vision of the film camera is still much larger, which means that there's more. It, you can't put your finger on it. It's kind of subliminal, but there's more of a presence. If you're taking a portrait of somebody and you've got a bigger negative, there is more presence with a larger field of vision. It's really hard to explain. You'd have to kind of, have to kind of show you, okay, here's a photograph taken of somebody and it's, here's, it is on like uh, 35 mil or digital and here it is taken on a four by five inch large format camera. And you'd go, uh, you know, literally side by side. Only then would you go, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I get it. Uh, with uh, this empty world, what was uh, what was the most uh, difficult part of it? And uh, the and night shoots. Well, huh, no. <laughs> First of all, spending that amount of money uh, and just sitting for weeks, uh, not just with sunlight, but with animals. The animals not coming to the cameras because all the cameras were set up in unprotected inhabited land close to the national park but not in it so close to roads close to villages um where the animals were very apprehensive about approaching a small waterhole that we dug to d attract them towards the camera and weeks and months would go by with nothing happening um, that was incredibly stressful to the point that I began to question whether I should just abandon the project altogether and cut my losses uh, before finally stuff started happening and we moved cameras to more realistic places. In other words, where the animals lived rather than what we did originally, which was me naively, overly optimistically hoping the animals would come to the places where they migrated through. It, it had to be where they actually lived. Um, and then the two months of night shooting was, as I mentioned, uh, super stressful. Have you ever abandoned the project? Um, no. Do you wish you had? <laughs> no, I, no, no, okay, so I, 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 on Inherit the Dust, um, I got a really nasty shock when I got home and I discovered that two-thirds of the negatives were absolutely useless because both the camera bodies had this weirdly the same floor and the mirror was vibrating and causing the negatives to vibrate and it was causing like camera shake or negative shake effectively and I was beside myself and I curled up in a fetal ball in bed for three days and just thought that's it I give up I can't go through this again it's cost too much money and then I thought oh, okay I'm gonna go back it had been 
It had been a six-week shoot. So three months later, I went back for three-week shoot and crammed it all in. And in retrospect, I'm glad it happened. Even though it cost me so much money to have to reshoot, I'm glad it happened because the results second time around with everything that I had learned from the first time, the results were better. Mm. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of something that John Cleese, uh, he has this very famous talk where he talks about creativity and he talks about having a script written for something. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a good script, but he lost it. And he was supposed to give it away, and he was like, "Oh, this is this is so bad because I've just I've lost it. I had just one copy from a typewriter, and and it's gone." And so he's like, "Okay, I just have to rewrite it." And so he rewrites it, and then a few days later he finds the original, mm. and then he's like, "The one that I wrote afterwards was a lot better," right. because your subconscious has already had the time yeah. to work yeah. with it, and then you're actually better at it. And I, it feels like this is similar to what happened to you, but at a great cost, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any uh, artists that you um, admire or that uh, oh, wh- whose work you look up to? Would you like to name some? I mean, yeah. I mean, in terms of inspiration, it's more painters. Mm. Um, so, for example, in uh, This Empty World, people may find it a strange reference if they even know his amazing work, but Gustave Doré, who was an in who did these series of extraordinary thousands of engravings. Um, I, I, I spent much, many, many hours looking at his work for inspiration for um, where kind of Noah's Ark got transformed into a petrol station in, mm. terms, of, in terms of the way the petrol station was in frame. Um, in terms of... Um, Uh, photography. I mean, there are many photographers whose work, obviously, I love from Sally Mann to Rich Davidon to Edward Steichen. Um, yeah. Any books or films uh, that have inspired you over, let's say, the past five years? So there were actually, I was originally a director and I was miserable. And there were two films that I saw in 1999 that was so brilliant i just thought okay i'm never going to be able to make films as good as this i'm just switching to what i want to do anyway which is you know photography of related to the environment and those two films were paul thomas anderson's magnolia and fincher's david fincher's fight club mm. and they were both i thought kind of works of genius Um, I just thought, okay, I, I need to feel like I'm really good at something to do it. Otherwise, I'd rather not subject myself. Um, there's enough masochism already going on without also then feeling kind of inadequate. And um, so those two films and, you know, every so often a film comes along that is just, yeah, that. I mean, for me, the the most exciting, the, the my favorite art form is actually music, mm. and um, I 
I mean, in another life, I wish I, that was what I would have wanted to be because I just think music is the most transcendent art form and universal art form, and you don't need to... Uh, it's not... You know, the way that visual arts are so diminished on stupid phones and computer screens that you need to see them, like here, at the museum. But how many people can make it to Fotografiska Tallinn to see the work in the form that it should be. Whereas with music, hey, you've just got your, you know, your headphones and off you go. Anywhere in the world. And the way that it acts as a soundtrack to moments in your life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, is there advice that uh, you often give to people who had ask advice from you because i suppose there is a lot of people who ask advice from you i mean i i've already s sort of said that the, the 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 one thing i would say first and foremost which is always create for yourself never for others because if you create for yourself and then it doesn't work out well you've not even been true to your own vision um so just be true to your own vision And then at least you've done something that you feel is of worth and at least, you know, you stay true to your own vision. So that's my number one piece of advice. Is there advice that uh, you feel people often give, but is actually not accurate? Can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. Have you have you ever been given advice that uh, like thinking back to it now, you're like, oh, this is, <laughs> that wasn't wise. I, I, the... the The one thing I, I have learned painfully over and over and over again is um, it's always a mistake to compromise. Mm. And I regret every time I've done it just to be a bit popular. Can you give me an example? Oh, no, I mean, there are just, it's like every time you do something that it's like, oh, you don't want to seem unpopular. If you are trying to execute a creative vision, it is like bringing a baby kicking and screaming into the world and for it to be good sometimes you have to be demanding and difficult and if you just are always i'm not saying you 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 know you don't need to be a dickhead but you need to just fight and fight and fight for it to be its in its uncompromised incarnation and it's so tempting to just you don't want to be unpopular and so you kind of give in on something and you will always regret it because that compromise impacts the way the work will be forever as opposed to a couple of people who just kind of hated you for a day or two because you made them work another two hours Yeah, so so you're trading something that is very short-lived to something that lasts forever and not in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you if, hope. <laughs> if you could go back in time and visit your young self, would there be advice advice that you would give yourself? Oh, God, yeah. Where to begin? Um, I would have said, but I really deeply regret that I wasted so much time not going straight into photography. Um, I didn't switch to photography until I was in my mid-30s. And I was I was a painter, 
And then I switched to film when I was, I don't know, 19 because of music. I wanted my images to have music with them. And then I went off on an 18 year detour, uh, directing music videos and commercials and writing screenplays and having movies 95% financed for years. And I wish I could have those 18 years back to have been taking photographs instead. Uh, because when because photograph photography is just as I've said before, y you can create what you want, how you want, when you want. And filmmaking, you are subject to somebody with the money giving you the money, so you can go off and create. And a director is typically a control freak, uh, and it's such a shame one has that phrase "control freak" because it's a derogatory thing, a freak. You're not a freak. You just want to be in control of your vision, which makes complete sense. But as a unfortunate phrase, control freak, um, you don't have any control on your own vision. And too many people waste, too many incredibly talented people lose the best, inverted commas, years of their lives waiting for to be given money to be able to exercise and express their creativity. And that's such a shame. And the beauty of photography is, even if it's just the phone, just go out and photograph. If you have something you want to say, something you need to say, you can do it. And um, that's the democracy of the photographic medium. I heard you uh, say something that I had never thought about before, but it did make a lot of sense. Uh, it was in a different uh, talk that you uh, gave some years ago, and it was the amount of money Oh, yeah. that a grown elephant or mm. a, an elephant actually uh, contributes to a community throughout the time of its yes. life versus the amount of money that mm. people get from its uh, tusks. Yeah. Uh, would you like to uh, Yeah, that was that a story? statistic from a few years ago and probably the numbers have changed now. But as I recall, it was that the value to a country's economy and the local community of the existence of an elephant during the course of its life, was it $1 million or $6 million? It was one, one or the other, which is a big difference, but sorry, I just can't remember. Whereas the value of the tusks through f to the various people from the uh, poachers to the traders is like $30,000. I think I've got the numbers wrong, but the point, the principle of the point was that purely pragmatically, the economic benefit of keeping these beautiful animals alive is of far more value and benefit and there alone is enough of a reason for society to protect beyond the kind of ethical and you know that just they shouldn't be killed but just purely pragmatically you can argue and this, you can argue this about pretty much everything environmental, that there's a long-term economic benefit to protecting the environment, to keeping animals alive, the, how it sustains local communities, um, uh, how for the benefit of, uh, how it benefits everybody on the planet um, in one, one way or another. I mean, in terms of air quality and uh, um, that's unrelated to elephants, of course. Um, it's just if only enough politicians would comprehend and have the courage to 
look at to, to pursue policies that embrace the long-term economic benefit of environmental protection yeah because what you said is basically what what they're doing with the elephant tusks is like the same if we would like chop our legs off and sell them for protein and then it's uh, but but like and we wouldn't uh, account for everything that you can do with your legs over the course of a lifetime right. and it's very similar like we have a price tag yeah. on like a patch of a forest or a or yeah. a, like a ton of fish yeah. but we don't have a price tag for what they can contribute over the course of their life and it's so sad and yeah. it, it's almost like childish it's it's like if it's you so think obvious. about it it's like I know. are we six years old can, yeah. can't we just think just a tiny bit ahead totally. yep 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 so yeah you f- you fish out the oceans and now whole um uh, economies where people came and scuba dived and lodges were employed local people um all of it just goes because nobody now visits and the same with uh y- you know these these ecosystems in africa where there are all these lodges employing all these people and safari safari guides and and if it, the animals go then nobody comes and you know i'm stating such an obvious thing and now it's just a bunch of cattle in a overgrazed dust bowl and nobody's going to come and now the only way the people can survive is by well they can't even really survive because it's so overgrazed and but there was this gold mine that they were sitting on of all these amazing animals and these lodges catering to wealthy visitors you know yeah mm-hmm. and this is uh, this is something that uh, your foundation the big life foundation is uh, at least trying in some part to help with right yeah um yeah in 2010 um i was watching with a certain amount of horror um an escalation in poaching of elephants and other animals and uh, there was no government support and there, were n- and there was really no non-profit organization in place and basically what happened was it ha- what happens is the animals may be protected in a park but the parks are really small like 100,000 acres Amboseli National Park 100,000 acres I always forget what that is in hectares but it's tiny so 80% of the time the animals move out of the park and they're immediately in an unpro- unprotected areas where they can get killed so it's kind of no point having a park if they're all out and then they're getting killed so um i co-founded big life foundation and um with the money i raised from wealthy collectors of my work we hired rangers built outposts got patrol vehicles and in a pretty short space of time um Um, we were arresting really long-time poachers who'd been operating for years, if not decades, and getting away with it. And now, 10, 11 years later, uh, the poaching is almost down to zero in 1.6 million acres of ecosystem. I, I looked, actually, it's 6,500 square kilometers. I looked it up this morning. Um, and... Um, we employ about 500 local people 300 more than 300 of which are rangers and we're one of the biggest employers of the in the area um and this is the way that uh conservation has to work in the 21st century which is pragmatically the, the ethos is if conservation supports the community then hopefully in theory the 
uh, the community will support conservation because it's not just the rangers who are making a living, but they're also supporting their families. And so across a whole ecosystem, you have all these people who are invested in that. Plus, there's, you know, uh, education scholarships and medical care and compensation for the killing of livestock and fences that are built to stop farmers' crops being raided by um, elephants. So they then don't immediately go out and spear an elephant by way of retribution and they don't go out and poison a lion because it killed their livestock because we offer compensation. And so this population of all the animals during that time has increased. But that it ain't that straightforward because now with a fast-growing population and the land is being fragmented and into potentially thousands of pieces uh, as farmland d is developed and fences go up and migratory corridors are closed off and before you know it you haven't got a functioning ecosystem with migratory corridors mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. and there's nowhere for the animals to go so that's the latest challenge there that is tough it's tough trying to make the world a better place for sure <laughs> especially listening listening to that but it's it's very beautiful that you're uh, open and honest about that uh, what about what about young people who uh, who live in Europe who live in in America who want to help who want to uh, have some kind of a positive impact or at least not a, ne a negative yeah. impact uh, what would you say to them what so, can they do so 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 the the phrase that i always use is it's better to be angry and active than angry and passive um just doing something anything whatever your passion is um you can it's it's so cliched and corny to say it but um all of us in our own small ways can cumulatively together make a big difference and if so you're just you know deciding i'm not going to buy any more plastic in the store i'm only going to buy produce in paper bags and I'm not gonna I'm gonna try and um, not buy any more vegetables that were grown with pesticide because that in contributes to an insect apocalypse that has an impact right through the food chain and um, if uh, it's and and if you look at what one Swedish girl achieved a few years ago Greta Thunberg um, let's hope we can have a million Greta Thunbergs all around the world, all screaming for change until finally the wretched, selfish adults listen. Uh, Nick, I'm going to ask you one last question, uh, unless there is something else that you would, mm. uh, would like to talk about. Uh, but uh, I would like to know uh, what's going on uh, for you right now. Are you in the process of uh, doing something? Uh, or if not, then what is next uh, for Nick Brandt? So um, I've just finished the next body of work called The Day May Break, um, which is the first part of a global series that um, the subjects are both humans and animals that have been dramatically impacted by environmental degradation and devastation. Um, it's photographed in Zimbabwe and Kenya, and features 
um, people who have been impacted by climate change. They're basically climate change refugees, and they're photographed in the same frame with animals who were rescues uh, at sanctuaries and conservancies and are habituated so that the two of them can be within the same frame. And the hope is that as uh, I continue with that body of work traveling around the world to other countries where there are also um, people and animals who have been impacted. I mean, obviously animals have been impacted everywhere uh, and more and more human beings have been impacted by climate change. So that is my hope and intention, depending on my ability to fund it. Those photos are so beautiful. Oh, well, thank These you. Are very, very, I've watched them so many times now. This is just gorgeous photos. Can I ask one strange question about them? Uh, the light bulb. Yes. You use light bulb on quite a few of them. Yes. Is there a specific reason yeah, for absolutely. that? Absolutely. So the, the people in the photographs, um, they're the only props that they have with them It's like they're stripped down to the barest essential of survival, a table, a chair, a bed. And to see by, as light as night falls, a single bare light bulb. So, um, and, and you see that kind of all over third world countries where it's just a single light bulb is illuminating, uh, you know, people's space at night. So it's just symbolic of part of those barest remaining elements to survive. Beautiful. Uh, is there anything else you would like us to touch upon? Only that I really hope that everybody listening to this can somehow, wherever they are, get to see what is, in my opinion, the best exhibition of work I've yet had. Photographiska uh, have organized uh, a really impressive show it looks fantastic the prints are all the larger size prints the size they're supposed to be seen in and um, i just hope i just want to say thank you to fotografiska and i hope um, as many people as possible listening to this podcast can get to actually see them beautiful uh, you know one of the slogans of fotografiska is inspiring a more conscious yep. world and i feel that your work is definitely 100% doing that so I thank you so. very much for that uh, if uh, people want to look you up if they want to like get in touch with you or find your works uh, uh, is there anywhere you can direct them uh, online that yeah, they can yeah i mean obviously look? to my website at nickbrandt.com um, obviously i'm not a fan of instagram because <laughs> Uh, this work does not work at the size of five centimeters. You just can't see anything. It's talk about diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a computer, uh, uh, at the website, if you can't make it to the exhibition, you can't buy one of the books because the books are also um, a very, a, a very good way of seeing the work in detail. And also, just beautiful things that you have in your home. Yep. Just yeah. Okay, Nick Brand, thank you very, very much for thank coming you, here. Alexander. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye.